0: Well
1: you have. It. You are now tuned in to the back hey,
0: Let me take your thoughts Now let's hear what Darvina has to say. We would be honored if
1: he would join us. Yo, 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 what's happening, far, far away family? It's your boy Kyle. And you are now tuned in to the most epic show in the cosmos, Star Wars Audio Archives. And I am here to share with you part nine of Fatal Alliance. So, prepare yourself for a ride that will have you screaming your pee, like a young Anakin winning a power race for the very first time. It's going to be out of this galaxy fun. So much fun that you might have to listen to it twice to take it all in. So, are you ready for some Star Wars? Then let's get to it.
2: The Auriga Fire's tri laser cannon emplacements were to port and starboard, just forward of its hyperdrives. They angled out slightly so they could cover every inch of the ship, were accessed by two tight tunnels that smelled of grease. Lorin had taken the port turret and eased herself into the cracked leather seat with easy familiarity. The prosthetic glove on her left hand was just sufficient to wrap around the cannon's hand grip, while her right hand handled the delicate movements required to target and fire. The cannon itself operated smoothly, swinging freely on its gimbals as though fresh out of the factory. It wasn't the first time she had noticed the mismatch between the Auriga fire's appearance and its capabilities. Another concerned its compact tractor beam facility, recessed behind a hatch in the ship's broad belly. It was a wildly non-standard feature for a ship of this size. She was curious to know how often it came in handy in the pursuit of Jet's normal job, but didn't really think Jet would admit to anything. For the moment, the flash and pound of the cannons was all that concerned her. A quick depression of the trigger and a web of wriggling hexes vanished in the fall of gases. This is as easy as shooting stump lizards on Kifex, she called the cigar over the head-mounted comlink. Watch that trio coming in from above, was all he said. Lorin swung the Trilaser and blasted them into atoms. Don't worry about the Grand Master, she told him. We'll find her. He had been subdued ever since the Corellia had detonated, shooting hexes with lethal speed and accuracy. Two-thirds of the cruiser's escape pods were now accounted for, but Master said... Teal wasn't in any of them. Shigar had tried broadcasting over all channels, but the electromagnetic spectrum was a mess. What wasn't jammed by the black hole, Imperial's repanic chatter was full of hexes screeching. It was all the new Republic commander could do to coordinate the larger ships and to safely picking up the escape pods without picking up hexes by accident as well. Dead ahead, said Jet from the cockpit. An escape pod had collided with two hexes that were in the process of cutting through the pod's thin hull. The Auriga fire swooped in to help. One each, Hetchki, Lorin said, as the tractor beam wrenched invisibly at the hexagonal droids. Favoritism is strongly frowned upon back here. She wondered if the former security guard knew she was joking. One hex tumbled away to port for Shigar to shoot, while the other, after a protracted struggle, wriggled into Lorin's sights. Then it was up to Ula to give the pod's panicked occupants coordinates for the rendezvous point. Stay in the channel. We've cleared, he told them. Don't take any shortcuts. It was horrible, babbled a young midshipman on the other end of the line. There were suddenly so many of them, and they moved so fast. You're safe now. Just stay in the channel and do what Captain Pippa says. Yes, yes, and thank you. Another few seconds, we'd have been hold for sure. The pod fired up its retro rockets and headed off in the right direction. Lorin hoped its occupants would be okay now. Several had been rescued and then fallen afoul of the hexes again, through either bad luck or poor judgment. One had stopped to rescue another pod in distress, only to be overwhelmed by hexes hiding inside. The Auriga fire had been too far away to help, but the screams had carried. Captain Pipoliti, the Anks in charge of the commoner, And by default, what remained of the fleet had a difficult job ahead of her, distributing the traumatized survivors through the remaining eight ships at her disposal. Lorin didn't envy her that job at all, with long-range comms scrambled, and nothing larger than a light assault cruiser to fill the place of the Corellia. But at least the lesson had been learned. The Hexes might not look like much individually, but they were tough, and in large numbers were to be taken very seriously indeed. There's another pole at the other side of the web ahead, said Jet. Do you think you can get us? Lorin peered through the scope. The web was one of the densest they'd seen so far, with hundreds of the hexes linked in a multi-limbed structure vaguely reminiscent of one individual hex, spinning slowly against the backdrop of the planet below. The limbs whipped and snapped, flinging hexes at far-off targets and scooping up replacements from the debris cloud around it. The pod Jet had spotted was drifting behind the main body, its retros damaged. The interior light flashed rapidly on and off, spelling out a call for help in Mon Calamari blink code. Easily, said Lorin, knowing nothing would make Shigar happier than killing more hexes. Except, of course, finding the Grand Master. See those concentrations near the center? Shigar said. ''That's the best place to hit. Take them out and the structure will tear itself apart. Affirmative!'' Lorin flexed real and prosthetic hands around the cannon grips, ready for action. ''Launches!'' said Ula, as the ship roared forward. Lorin glanced at telemetry just long enough to take a quick snapshot of the wider battlefield. It was dominated by several overlapping debris fields in low orbit over Sabaddon, the largest centered on where the Corellia had broken apart.'' The safe segment of the Republic fleet and several dozen escape pods were now well clear of danger, regrouping near the planet's rocky moon. The Imperial fleet was in the process of splitting in two, as uninfected ships copied the Republic's tactic of retreat. Two squadrons of Imperial fighters were disabling the engines of several vessels, so they couldn't spread their infection by ramming or detonating nearby. Lorin approved of the tactic she might have suggested it herself had not the infected republic ships seemed so intent on targeting the empire republic fighters swarmed around the uninfected section of the fleet keeping the hexes at bay defying gravity and distance some actually managed to reach that far if just one was carrying a nest the infection could take root all over again her mind latched on to that thought and for an instant she was back on hutta staring at the droid factory and the Sith blade was flashing like a crimson lightning bolt past her eyes all over again. Her fingers fell with the comlink to the metal floor, and a scream of pain boiled in her throat. She blinked and was back in the present. The scream remained. Launches, Ula had said. She focused on that instead. Five missiles were rising through the atmosphere of Sabadin, launched separately in groups of two and three. The first pairing was aimed at the Imperial forces. The others, she was relieved to see, were aimed nowhere near the Auriga Fire or the rest of the Republic fleet. They appeared, in fact, to be aimed nowhere at all. The possible motives of Lima Zandrit and her followers fell from Loren's mind as the Auriga Fire came within range of the giant hex agglomeration. She did as Shigar had suggested, putting bolt after bolt into the nearest internal cluster. That had a satisfactory effect at first. The Hex's combined mirror shield defense was soon overwhelmed, and the cluster began to look decidedly threadbare, like a crater-riddled moon on the verge of collapse. But then, once again, the hexes demonstrated their ability to adapt in the face of a threat. The cluster rearranged itself into a stubby tube, with one flat end pointing at the Auriga fire. Lorin fired at the tube as a matter of course, and the mirror shields flashed into life, catching the laser bolt and channeling it along the tube center. The bolt ricocheted backward and forward, joining others she fired after it, until the whole tube began to glow. She took her remaining thumb off the trigger just as the tube released all the energy it contained in a single powerful pulse, aimed back at the Ariga fire. Even through the ship's unusually powerful shields, the impact was deafening. Lorin fell back into her seat with one arm covering her eyes. A split instant later, a second bolt struck the ship. This one created by Shigar's attempts to destroy the target. The Auriga fire went into a wild tumble, then righted itself with a jerk. Fire! Cease fire! Jet was yelling. All right, we get it. Lorin adjusted her earpiece. What are we supposed to do now? Pull faces at it until it goes away? I don't know, he said. ''But we can't take another hit like that. Our shields are down at 40 percent.'' ''Angle the shields forward,'' said Shigar. ''Set a course for the closest of those tube things. When I tell you to, put the sublights on full.'' ''That's madness,'' said Ula. "No. I see where he's headed.'' Jet brought the ship around to face the tube Lorin had fired into. Bright discharges still sparked from hex to hex, running in waves up and down the length of the tube. ''He wants energy?'' Energy all happily give it. The Riga fire leapt forward as though to ram. The hexes fired ineffectually at the forward screens, and the agglomeration's arms curled in to embrace their attacker. Lorin's hands lay restlessly on the cannon controls as the tube grew rapidly larger ahead of her. This, she told herself, was one situation where firing would definitely make things worse. Instead, she was part of the bullet and the trigger at the same time. The Auriga fire reached the tube's open end. It was just wide enough for the ship to fit inside, a fact for which Lorin was completely grateful. The tri-laser blasters marked the ship's widest point. The moment it and its passengers were completely encapsulated, Shigar shouted, Now! And Jet switched the sublights to full. There followed a horrible moment when the ship strained to move forward but all the force it produced was sucked up by the weave of tightly bound hexes surrounding it. Lorin could see the effect it had on them at horribly close quarters. The hexes writhed and shook and slowly began to glow. Metal limbs flared like magnesium burning in pure oxygen. Black sensory pods popped and hexagonal bodies stretched. She couldn't hear anything, but she imagined the hexes screaming Turning a laser bolt back onto its owner was one thing. Absorbing all the energy required to accelerate a starship was quite another. The Auriga fire burst out the other side, trailing a tail of bright blue. The hex tube shook and bulged as it tried to contain the energy it had absorbed. A ball as bright as a sun formed in its heart, and Lorin feared it might actually shoot out at them, destroying them instantly. But then the hex tube buckled as the ball didn't so much explode as discharge throughout the entire agglomeration. Thousands of hexes burst apart in an instant, spraying the surrounding vacuum with exotic shrapnel. Yee-haw! yelled Loren. then added more soberly, Let's never do that again! The beleaguered escape pod and its occupants found themselves unexpectedly out of danger. It was a simple matter now to snatch it up in the tractor beam and haul it to safety outside the debris field where other ships could look after it. As the Auriga fire turned about to look for another harried pod, Chigar said, Wait, what is it? She asked, hearing a note of urgency in his voice. It's her. Master Satil is calling me. i am not picking up any transmissions, Jet told him. She's not calling me that way. Lorin held her breath not wanting to distract him as he concentrated on whatever he was receiving through the force. See that chunk of the Corelli over there, Jet? Head in that direction. Will do. The Auriga fire accelerated for a relatively large piece of the destroyed cruiser. The twisted oval fragment was approximately 50 meters down its long axis and featured a gold finish down one side, revealing that it had once been part of the hull. It tumbled freely through the hexes, and appeared to be the focus of a concentrated scavenging effort, leaching metal from one end. Lorin readied herself for the order to fire. When Master Satiel's pod came into view, getting her safely and quickly clear would be the priority. Then, ''I don't see any pods,'' Ula said. ''Are you sure this is the right spot?'' It wasn't the first time the former envoy had expressed doubts about Shigar's abilities, Lorin wondered if he was part of the Axis in the Republic government that mistrusted the Jedi and their methods. ''I'm sure,'' said Shigar. ''She's not in a pod. She must be in a pressurized compartment in that chunk.'' ''I can ready a docking ring,'' said Jet, ''if he can pinpoint a location.'' ''We won't have time,'' said Ula. ''There are hexes all over that thing,'' Chigar said. ''You have back suits, don't you? I'll jump the gap.'' I'm coming with you, said Lorraine. No, he said. I'll need you on the cannon, making sure no more come aboard. Drop me off, back away, then come get us when we're out. I'll take a spare suit for her. And if her compartment doesn't have an airlock, then I'll think of something else. She heard him crawling up his access tunnel, back into the ship, and turned to look at him. Are you sure this is the right thing to do? She called at him along the tunnel, unable to hide the intense worry she felt. The wreckage was crawling with hexes. One slip, and neither he nor his master would come back. Positive, he said. She's the most important person in the galaxy. It's my duty to save her. Then he was gone, leaving Lorin feeling slightly wounded by his words. On Hutta, he hadn't come to save her. If his deal with Tassabarish had gone awry, she would have ended up Rancor food for certain. But for Master Satil. He swept in with lightsaber swinging, risking life and limb, and not even letting Lorin help. She wondered if he thought she might slow him down. Don't think like that, she told herself. We're still partners, and this obviously isn't going to be over as quickly as we thought. Chances are we'll find plenty more opportunities to fight back to back. She swung the cannon around and picked off a hex standing high on the back of the wreckage. That was one less he would have to worry about. The Auriga Fire's back suits were simple models, with no armor, inbuilt weapons, or maneuvering jets, and barely 50 minutes of air in their backpacks. Shigar guessed they were normally used for quick repairs outside the ship, where they could be tethered to the main life support. Shigar stripped out of the new clothes he had improvised from Ula's official wardrobe, brown robe, black pants, and sand-colored top, the closest he could approximate to Jedi colors, then picked the cleanest suit from the rack and slipped it quickly over his unprotected limbs. Ideally, he would have worn a body glove, like Lorin's, but there wasn't time for such niceties. He would use biofeedback to regulate his body temperature. He fixed his lightsaber to a clip on the suit's right hip, where it would be accessible in an instant, and slung a spare suit over the crook of his left arm. After locked, primed and ready, Said Jet over the suit's intercom. Okay. Shigar tested the seals one last time. The air tasted stale, but that was the least of his problems. Get in as close to the wreckage as you can. His breathing sounded loud in his ears, as the airlock's inner door opened and he stepped inside. As the airlock cycled, he took the opportunity to center himself. He knew what to expect. He'd faced the hexes before. His priority, however, was to find Master Satiel and get her out as quickly as possible. There wasn't time to fight or take any unnecessary risks. That would only get both of them killed. Can you hear me, Master Satiel? He asked over the suit comm, using a band thick with the static of distant stars. Military forces normally avoided that channel, making it perfect for short-range transmissions that needed to go untraced. Perfectly well... Master Satil responded, faintly but clearly. How's your air? Running low, but not critical yet. The outer door opened with a puff of fog, and Shigar kicked himself out onto the hull. For a moment, the sheer weirdness of his position struck him hard. He was standing practically naked on the hull of a smuggler ship, surrounded by killer droids and wrecked ships... With the galaxy's brilliant spiral to one side And the jets of a black hole to the other He couldn't tell if what he felt was joy or terror The twisted wreckage drew nearer Lorin's cannon flashed, and a hex went tumbling Using the tractor beam, Hetchkey pulled another hex Out of what had once been a window in the Corellia's hull That created a clear spot Shigar braced himself to jump Here's as close as we can get, said Jet don't miss. With one explosive kick of his muscles, Shigar cleared the gap. For a moment, the sky turned about him. The planet came into view from behind the Origa fire, blistered with magma domes. And then he hit the wreckage solidly, with arms outstretched to find the slightest grip. He stuck fast and paused to catch his breath. A hex, alerted to his arrival by the subtle shift in the wreckage's angular momentum, peered with black eyes out of a nearby hole. Its forelegs came out to point at him. Shigar reached for his lightsaber, but Hetchkey was quicker. The hex swept up and away from him into empty space, where it was blown to atoms by Lorin. ''Thanks,'' he said. ''Pleasure,'' came Lorin's reply. ''Are you going to lie there all day while we do all the work?'' He was already moving tugging himself lightly from handhold to handhold in the perfect freefall of open space. You are close, said Master Satil over the comm. I can sense you. There's a shattered access port ahead. Go in that way. He obeyed without hesitation, keeping a sharp eye out for more hexes. When he was inside, there would be no rescue from Lorin and Hetchkey. The wreckage appeared to have been part of the Corellia's Forward Command Center and had been occupied at the time of the disaster. Shigar squeezed past several bodies as he wound his way deep into the twisted structure. The path was tight and occasionally dangerous, with sharp edges and spikes to negotiate. There was very little light. Come to the next intersection and stop there for a moment, she told him. I have to tell you something. The sound of movement came from ahead, through the bulkheads he touched, and Shigar slowed to a bare creep, every sense attuned to the slightest change. The intersection must have once been broad enough for a landspeeder, but was now barely large enough to admit a person, particularly one as tall as him. There was definitely something moving down the right-hand bend. What I must tell you is this, Master Satil said. Ever since we heard the droids, I've been wondering just how much of us Lima Zandrit put into her creations. The answer is around that corner, Shigar. Can you see it yet? He edged around the corner to see what lay ahead of him. There were nine motionless hexes clustered around a pressurized door, as though waiting for it to open. I'm behind that door, she said. And soon you will be, too. ''How, Master?'' He couldn't conceive of a way to defeat nine hexes at once, when just two had been more than a match for him on Hutta. There was barely enough room to slide by them, let alone fight. ''You told me that the droid factory contained a biological component,'' she said. ''It seemed reasonable to wonder if the hexes might also...'' ''There's a fluid inside them,'' he said, remembering what he had seen on Hutta. ''It looks like blood.'' but they're definitely droids they're not cyborgs not in the usual sense they are something else but the fact that they are at least partly alive is the only reason I'm still here you're influencing them? as much as I can which isn't very much they only attack when either obstructed or threatened I'm doing neither so they're letting me be they won't go away But at least they're not being aggressive. I think I can hold them back while you come to the door. Shigar swallowed. You want me to walk right through them? It's the only way. And then what? Then you open the door and let me out. I have a suit for you. I won't have the chance to put it on. There's no airlock. I'll keep a bubble of air around me using a force shield. That'll give me a couple of minutes you'll have to move much faster than that though i won't be able to hold the hexes and the shield at the same time shigar clenched his fists it seemed impossible but she was relying on him no one else could help her i'm on my way master he nudged himself around the corner and came into full view of the hexes Despite his faith in Satil Shan's mental powers, he fully expected to be shot down at once. Instead, the hexes just looked at him with their black sensory pods and rearranged themselves slightly so they could watch both the door and him at the same time. Feeling like he was in some kind of surreal nightmare, Shigar pushed himself into the tangle of fat bodies and angular limbs, taking the utmost care not to touch anything... He didn't want a chance bump to wake them from their uncharacteristic complacency. He even breathed quietly, despite the perfect insulation of the vacuum around him. The intensity of the Hex's gaze made him squirm inside. Finally, he was at the door. A red light warned of pressure on the far side. He keyed an override into the pad, and the light turned green. The door would open at his command now, expelling the air in an instant. Are you ready, Master? Yes. He pushed the button. The gale tried to blow him away, but he was firmly braced against the opposite wall. The hexes flailed in surprise, suddenly released from Master Satil's calming influence and blinded by the frozen air coating their sensory pods. Shigar was partly blind, too. He could see only blurrily through the mist stuck to his visor, but he had the advantage of not having to see. His Master's presence was like a beacon to him. He lunged into the tiny chamber and hit the switch to seal the door behind him. The hexes scrabbled to get in. It wouldn't be long before they cut their way through. He had maybe seconds to find a way out. Master Satil floated in a ball in the center of the room, her force shield shimmering around her. A milky luminescence maintained barely a finger span from her body. Shigar was struck by how small she looked. In his mind, she always seemed of gigantic stature, not just dominating the Jedi High Council, but influencing the course of the Republic as well. Now, though, she seemed tiny. A grating noise came from the door. The Hexes were already cutting through. Master Satil had left her lightsaber floating beside her, outside the force shield. He took it in his left hand, reached for his own with his right, and activated them both simultaneously. Their greens were not quite identical, and by their combined light, odd shadows danced across the walls. The room was barely three meters cubed. Apart from the door, there were no other entrances. That didn't matter. Shigar could make his own. Raising both lightsabers He stabbed into the wall at a point above his head Then spread both blades out in a circle Before meeting at the level of his knees A red-edged section of the wall fell free And he kicked it into the space on the far side Using telekinesis to gather up Master Satil, He propelled himself through the gap It was another room Requiring another makeshift door He moved quickly with confident strokes Behind him the hexes were wriggling through widening rents in the door and wall. In a second, they would be upon him. A hallway this time. He swept Master Satiel ahead of him and hurriedly took his bearings. He had come this way on the journey in. At the far end of the corridor, he could see the distant spiral of the galaxy. A fat-bodied hex crawled into view, blocking his path. Get ready, he called over his comlink. I'll be coming out fast. Good, said Lorraine. It's getting a little tight out here, too. Shigar didn't waste energy, replying. Master Satil's shield was undoubtedly strong enough to deflect anything the Hex could throw at them, so he kept her ahead of him. His job was simply to move both of them, fast. The Force rushed through him. Ever since his earliest discovery of his powers, he had loved the thrill of speed, and it helped him win races before his removal from Kifu. It helped him survive challenges at the academy. Remembering that wild feeling of acceleration, he dug deep into himself and kicked off against the wall behind him. The corridor blurred. Master Satil preceded him like a cannonball, blowing the Hex backward out of the wreckage and into space. For an instant, all was turning sky and scrabbling legs. Then an invisible force wrenched the Hex away, and he was swept upward into the waiting airlock of the Eureka fire. Came Lorin's voice over the comlink. Safe and sound. Several quick blasts from the tri-laser put the hex out of commission and sent four others that had emerged after Shigar, scurrying for cover. He gripped the sides of the airlock as the ship accelerated away, spinning agilely through the limbs of an approaching agglomeration, with Lorin's covering fire clearing a brightly lit path. Then the door was shut and warm air rushed in. Shigar hadn't noticed how cold his fingers had become. He rubbed them quickly together, then righted Master Satiel on the floor. We're out of danger now, Master. The force shield shimmered and dissolved. Grand Master Satiel Shan unfolded to a sitting position, and opened her eyes. Thank you, Shigar. She stood and smoothed down her robes. I owe you my life. Shigar bowed his head, and returned her lightsaber. I did only what I must, Master. Her right hand gripped his shoulder. That's all we ever do, Shigar. In times of war. The inner door opened. You'd better get up here, said Jet over the ship's internal calm. Fast. Shigar led his master through the cramped corridors of the ship to the elevated cockpit. Ula and Jet were at the controls, with Clunker standing to one side, as motionless as a statue. Hetchki was elsewhere, filling the empty trilater spot Shigar assumed, now that the need for the tractor had passed. Ula glanced at them as they entered, then stood up and bowed. Grandmaster, he said with a nervous expression on his face, I am relieved to see you again. Have we met? I am Envoy V, on the staff of the Supreme Commander. Forget the introductions, said Jet. We can have a tea party later. "'There's another ship on the scope.' "'Imperial?' asked Master Satil, leaning over Ula's chair. "'I don't think so.' "'Jet brought up a wide view of the space around Sabadan. "'Just when I thought we were getting a handle on this mess.' "'The viewscreen showed the remaining Republic fleet at a much higher orbit than it had been before, "'well out of range of the Hexes. "'Infected ships were lancing out in wildly different directions,' thanks to crippled drives or gravitational pull from either Sabaddon or the Black Hole. The Imperial fleet, reduced to seven ships, including its bulk cruiser, was also ascending to higher ground. A quick glance at the projected orbits showed that they were likely to cross paths in a few hours, but that was something to worry about later. What's all this? asked Shigar, brushing his hand through a layer of fuzz surrounding the planet's equator. That's where the last three missiles broke up, said Ula. And two more launched since. They weren't aimed at anything. I think Xandrit is laying down a defensive halo of hexes to protect the planet. As well she might, said Master Satiel. Show me the latest arrival. Jet's finger stabbed at a bright dot hovering near the planet's tiny satellite. It appeared a minute ago. From the same coordinates as everyone else? No. It launched from a crater on the moon. I think it's been hidden there the whole time. She nodded. I'd like to broadcast a message. Jet gave her the call. It's about time you showed yourself, she said. I'd very much like to talk to you, Dow
0: Striver. And I you, Grandmaster, came the immediate reply. It pleases me that you survived this unflattering route.
2: Can one take pleasure from the survival of one's enemy? She asked the Mandalorian.
0: One can indeed, he said. I will explain in due course.
2: I very much hope so.
0: Meet me at the moon in half an hour. Send one ship, no escort. You have my word that you and your party will not be harmed.
2: Stryver clicked off. I don't trust him, sugar said. We have no choice, she said. Plot the course, Captain Nebula. Take us by the commoner. I need to speak to Captain Pipilidi now, in case we don't get another chance. We? asked Jet. This mission has already lost seven vessels of war. I will not risk another. Doesn't anyone care what I'm prepared to risk? Look at this, said Ula, drawing everyone's attention back to the viewscreen. The Imperials are launching a shuttle. We can't let it reach the jump coordinates, said Chigar. If they're sending for reinforcements... ''I don't think that's where they're headed,'' Satiel said. ''One ship, no escort,'' she quoted. "Its driver did say we wouldn't be harmed by him,'' added Jet. ''Are you certain you want to do this?'' ''For the flyby of the commoner,'' she told him. ''Get us moving now. I'll talk with Captain Pippelidi on the way.'' ''Yes, ma'am,'' said Jet, casting Master Satiel a sardonic salute.'' We might as well run to our doom as walk. Ula watched with mounting dread as the rendezvous point loomed. He was in the worst position imaginable. Unable to act against the Republic's wishes because Satil Shan would immediately overrule him. And unable to reveal his identity to his real masters without blowing his cover. For a wild moment, he considered throwing himself on the mercy of the Mandalorians. But sanity fortunately prevailed. Striver had no mercy. The best Ula could have hoped for in his care was slavery. At least he was alive, he told himself, and had a chance of staying that way if he stepped through this minefield with utmost care. The Auriga fire's blunt nose was angling ahead of the Imperial shuttle on its approach to Sabadin's solitary satellite. The moon was blocky and misshapen, more like a brick than a sphere with a cornucopia of craters and fathomless fissures marring its ugly face. No wonder Stryver had stayed hidden for so long. It didn't appear to have been mined or booby-trapped, which was a major omission for a colonial administration so keen to remain undisturbed. Ula wondered if they'd simply never thought of it, or if they'd erroneously, but not unreasonably, assumed they would never be discovered so far from the galactic disk. The first blood, Stryver's scout anchored itself to the surface of the moon as the two ships approached. It was shaped like a crescent moon, with forward-pointing wings that bristled with weapons and a matte black non-reflective skin. There were no markings of any kind, just two glowing circles on either side indicating ready airlocks. Jet prepared a docking ring and tube to cross the distance, and jockeyed to approach the starboard airlock. The Imperial pilot noted his intentions and moved to dock on the opposite side. Along with Lorin and Hetchki, Ula watched the shuttle closely for any signs of treachery. The way the Imperials had illegally destroyed the Republic shuttle on Hutta was still painful to him. He expected better. Who's going in? asked Lorin over the internal calm. Cigar and I, said Master Satil. and Envoy V.E. Ula swallowed. I fear I can be of little use he started to say but was cut off by Lorraine you'll need a bodyguard she said just for appearances all right and take Klunker too said Jet I'll watch through his eyes can you and keep pilot the ship on your own if you have to in a pinch said the smuggler with the right incentive I could fly a battle cruiser on my own very well then Maintain the umbilical seal, but close the ship once we have disembarked. Leave on my signal whether we're aboard or not. Don't worry about that, the smuggler told her. I'll dust off if you so much as twitch funny. Ula sought distraction in telemetry as the ship settled lightly on the low-gravity moon. Sabaddon hadn't launched any missiles since the last round. The main hotspot had been made considerably hotter by retaliatory fire, and activity was growing in other regions as well. It looked to him as though the occupants of the planet were regrouping in order to fight back, but it was hard to tell from such a distance. Every spy drone launched by the Republic fleet had been intercepted by the orbital halo of hexes and destroyed. Maybe, he told himself, he could slip a message of some kind to his opposite number in the Imperial Party. That was a small and unlikely hookling to. With a series of clanks and thumps, The ship's belly grapnels took a firm grip on the dusty soil outside. The whine of repulsor lifts faded away. Jet took his hands off the controls and leaned back into the seat. For all his bluster, he looked exhausted, or at least hung over. His prematurely gray hair stood up on one side, and his eyes were heavily bagged. I'll mind the farm until you get back, he told them. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Ula stood hoping against hope that the Grandmaster would change her mind. No such good fortune. She was already heading down the cockpit ladder, trailing Shigar like a pet. Ula waved Clunker ahead of him. Good luck, Jet told him. You didn't say that to the others. I figure they don't need it. Thanks for the vote of confidence, Jet grinned. You'll be okay. Just remember, you've got an unbeatable advantage... What's that? The ability to see both sides at once. Ula didn't know what to say to that, or to the many other hints Jet had dropped indicating that he knew what Ula was. Ula had never had the courage to ask outright, not even during the long hours when he and the smuggler had sat waiting for Shigar to make good on his psychometric promise. Whether it was true or not that Jet had guessed, Ula would rather it was never said aloud. His life relied on pretense. Once it was gone, he didn't know what that would leave him. So he just nodded and headed down the stairs to meet the others at the airlock, wondering how anyone in his position could be considered advantaged. He felt like he was being pulled in a dozen directions. If he wasn't careful, one sharp tug might tear him to pieces. Axe walked the short distance along the umbilical with measured fury. She burned to be back in the Interceptor rather than wasting her time with Mandalorians and envoys again. It was as bad as being back on Hutta, only this time she had no clear advantage to hope for. All she could think of was the work she should have been doing at that moment. Protecting the fleet from Hexes, at least. Or maybe even preparing an attack force to wipe driver from the sky. She didn't like coming to him when called, like some kind of menial... You will speak to the meddling Mandalorian on my behalf. Her master had told her. But master...
0: Do I need to explain to you again what your duty is? It is to serve the Emperor through me, his instrument. When
2: you defy me, you defy him. And that was the problem, of course. She had defied him. By ignoring his orders during the Hex's attack on Hutta... Now she was being punished for it, while he waited comfortably half-frozen in the secret room in his shuttle. Whether her defiance had served the fleet or not was irrelevant. She could only forget all about doing anything constructive, let alone to the betterment of the Empire, until Darth Kratos changed his mind. "'I'm here,' she said when she reached the First Blood's external airlock. Her right hand fiddled with the hilt of her lightsaber. "'Don't keep me waiting, Stryver.' The door hissed open. A token escort followed her into the ship, three soldiers in formal black and grays. She didn't look behind her to make sure they were keeping up. As a deliberate act of defiance aimed at both Striver and her master, she hadn't changed out of her combat uniform. It stank of oil and smoke and combat, exactly like Striver's ship. Her hair swayed heavily down her back, like thick rope. The first blood had a low profile head-on, but was surprisingly spacious inside. Its walls were ribbed rather than sealed with flannels. Sometimes there were no gaps at all delineating corridor from hold. Wiring and components were occasionally exposed. All, she supposed, in an effort to keep weight down. She also assumed that anything secret was kept well out of sight, so she didn't trouble herself with memorizing what she saw. She just walked following the sound of voices leading to the center of the vessel. Understand why you need all of us at once. Can't you tell us now? Axe knew that voice. She had heard it on Hatta. It belonged to a near-human who had fought on the Republic side, although clearly not a trooper herself. What was she doing here?
0: I don't like repeating myself,
2: said another familiar voice. The deep vocoder-inflected tones of Dao Striver. Axe walked around a thick pillar of cables acting as conduit and support and found herself in the main cabin. It was a circular room with glowing white floor and ceiling and a central hollow projector. Stryver stood to Axe's left, helmet just clearing the relatively high ceiling. To his left were a motley group of people, including several more individuals Axe recognized. The Republic envoy, A droid she had seen hanging around Barisha's security airlock, and the Jedi Padawan. Next to him stood a woman she hadn't met before, but instantly recognized. Axe stopped on entering the room, a wary hiss unconsciously escaping from between her teeth. The air was thick with the enemy's self-righteousness, concentrated mainly around the slight woman with the gray streak wearing the robes of a Jedi knight. No mere Jedi Knight, she. The Grand Master of the High Council herself. Darth Kratis would grind his crystalline teeth in frustration at missing such a close encounter with the Emperor's most hated foe. To slay her would bring Axe considerable fame and fortune among those favored by the Dark Council. Axe forced her hand to leave her hilt alone. For all her ambition... Axe knew that she could not single-handedly beat both Master and Padawan She would have to strike with words instead of her blade The Jedi Order must be weak indeed, she said For the Grand Master and a youngling to jump on a Mandalorian's whim The Padawan Shigar stiffened at her description of him as a child Not so weak, he said That I didn't save your life at least once on Hutta. You are mistaken, she said Feeling heat rise up her neck. Am I? I'll try harder not to be next time. Enough, said the Grandmaster, and the Padawan obeyed her instantly. We're all here now, Striver. Get on with it.
0: I do not take your orders, Grandmaster, said the Mandalorian. Nonetheless, you have a point. I brought you here to show you something. The hollow projector
2: between them flickered into life. Axe recognized the globe of Sabaddon, with its tiny gem-like lakes scattered among irregular continent-sized bulges of heat. Magma seams glowed orange, forming a tracery that on other worlds might have been rivers. Several blue circles at the intersections of such traceries indicated settlements or industrial centers. Axe recognized the one Darth Kratos had bombed when the Paramount was attacked, and many others. Some that she remembered weren't visible at all.
0: This is how Sabaddon looked when I arrived six hours before you. This is how it looked when you arrived.
2: There was a clear difference. Many of the missing hotspots were now present. The brightest were brighter still. This is how it looks now. Axe didn't need to stush She already knew. Your points? They work fast, said the Padawan. That's what Jet said when we arrived. He thought the colony was about twenty years old. It can't be more than 15, said Axe, remembering how long it had been since Lima Zandret defected. It's actually much less than that, Striver said, resting his giant gloved hands on the edge of the projector and leaning over the image.
0: Study this sequence of images carefully, and you'll see that the colony expanded 5% since I arrived. If you project that rate of growth backward in time, that gives a founding date of about three weeks ago.
2: ''Impossible,'' she said. ''That's around when the Sinzi was intercepted,'' said Ula. ''So what? It's still impossible.''
0: ''Is it?'' ''Lima Sandra chose this colony partly because of its wealth of resources. ''With an army of willing workers and a means of making new ones, ''why couldn't she do whatever else she wanted?''
2: ''If the colony could grow so quickly, why is it still so small?''
0: "'That's a good question, Eldon Axe. You should know your mother better than anyone else here. What do you think?'
2: Instead of blushing, Axe felt her face grow cold and taut. "'Start talking sense, man, or I'm leaving.' Both of Striver's index fingers tapped heavily, just once, and for the first time, Axe noted that he had only four fingers on each hand. "'Not exactly a man, then,' she thought." But who cares about that? I've been watching all of you, while you blunder about getting yourselves killed. That's the advantage of being first on the field of battle.
0: Instead of testing Sabaton's defenses myself, I sat back and watched you do it. It has been an interesting experiment, one that confirmed my previous observations. The inhabitants of Sabaton are unwilling even to talk about opening their borders to outsiders. "'particularly the Empire, "'and they are capable of defending themselves when pushed.'
2: "'We were taken by surprise,' said Axe. "'That won't happen next time.' "'If you wait too long, "'surprise won't be the only thing you have to worry
0: about.' "'What do you mean?' asked Satele Shan. "'How long will it take you to call for reinforcements? "'You can't call, so it's a two-way trip to send a messenger. "'Then a fleet has to be assembled.' The larger the fleet, the more time you'll need. And with each hour, Sabadin is converting more of its precious metals to machines of war. More than 30 ships built today. How long until 50 ships isn't enough? A hundred? A thousand?
2: Axe sneered. No single planet could withstand the
0: might of the Imperial War Machine. I might agree. If the Imperial War Machine was available... But it's currently stretched across all the galaxy, thin and vulnerable. And the same can be said for the Republics. Furthermore, we all know that neither would come if we called.
2: They would think your concerns exaggerated. They are more interested in fighting each other than this single, isolated threat. Is it a threat? asked Shigar. Sandrit won't talk to us, but at least she stopped firing now we've moved away. Why don't we give her what she wants and leave her alone? Do you really think that's possible now? Said the female near-human. Why not? Shigar looked at his master for support, but she wasn't giving it to him. You are naive, said Axe. This world is too valuable. The Emperor will have it, or no one will. And your mother must be made an example of. Otherwise, the power of Sith will be eroded. Stop calling her my mother! Lima Sandrit is a criminal and a fugitive. There is no possibility that she will
0: escape justice. Would you strike her down yourself if you could? I would, and I will. She means nothing to me. Good. I believed once that I might reason with her. I believed that I could broker an agreement that would keep her and her creations in check. Now I fear that it is too late for any kind of negotiation. No reasoning or agreement is possible. Has she gone
2: mad? Asked the trooper to Shigar's right. If so, there are other options. We could take her out and talk to someone else, for
0: instance. This plan suffers from one small but fatal flaw. That is?
2: Asked the Republic envoy.
0: Lima Zandrit is already dead. She has been for some time icy
2: splinter snapped in Axe's heart at those words, leaving her unable to tell if she felt
0: triumph or grief or both.
2: I think it's time you told us everything you know, said Master Satil. I agree, said Lorin. Since when do Mandalorians negotiate with anyone? Ula remembered Jet telling him. They don't believe they have any equals. You were the person Xandred's emissaries were hoping to meet, Ula said. You came looking for them when they didn't show up. The giant domed helmet inclined in his direction. Correct. Was Xandred herself supposed to be aboard the Cinzia? asked Shigar. Is that why you think she's dead?
0: No. She sent another. I believe she was here when she died.
2: So you don't know for sure? Asked the Sith. Her face had a white, pinched look under her blood-red dreadlocks. I am certain of it. Did you kill her? Did you see her body? No. So how can you be certain? Striver tapped his helmet with one gloved finger. Ula couldn't see the Mandalorian's face, but was positive he was smiling. She means nothing to me. The young Sith said firmly as though reassuring herself of the truth of it.
0: I just want to be certain. Be certain of this, Eldon Axe. When those droids your mother created leave this world, they will
2: consume the entire galaxy in less than a generation. Ula blinked. The claim was preposterous, but if Stryver truly believed it, that did explain another puzzling piece of the story. So that's why you were willing to talk to her, Ula said. Lemus Sandrit was a threat, or a possible ally, just like the Empire. A force to be reckoned with, potentially, said Master Satiel, A force we clearly underestimated, but you wouldn't have taken her word on it. You must have received some kind of proof. A demonstration factory. In two days, it manufactured seventeen droids and two duplicates
0: of itself, using nothing but the materials around it. The duplicate factories went immediately to work, making another four factories and even more droids. Their rate of reproduction was limited only by the energy available to them. Later we discovered how they send out roots to tap into the local supply, ensuring they never run out. Curious, we put the droids in the pit, and they prevailed against all but the current champion. Then the droids and factories self-destructed, leaving insufficient remains for us to probe the secrets of their manufacture or function. The message was clear. The Mandalore sent me to pursue the conversation.
2: Why did he send just you? asked Loren. You're not much use to us on your own. I can confirm several hypotheses that you might already be forming. This will save you time so you can begin to act. STRIVER RAISED HIS RIGHT HAND AND BEGAN TICKING OFF POINTS.
0: ONE. Lima ZANDRET AND HER FELLOW REFUGEES ARRIVED ON ZABADDON, DETERMINED TO CAST OFF THE HIERARCHY THEY HAD LEFT BEHIND. FIFTEEN YEARS LATER, HIDING WAS NO LONGER SUFFICIENT. ZANDRET WANTED REVENGE ON THE PEOPLE WHO HAD STOLEN HER DAUGHTER. SO SHE SOUGHT OUT Mandalore TO HELP HER. SHE APPROACHED HIM BECAUSE MY CULTURE ESCHEWS THE FORCE. That, after all, was where all this started. With militarized religious cults turning children into monsters.
2: Ula didn't dare look at the young Sith's face. He didn't know exactly how the Sith trained their acolytes, but this sounded plausible. He wondered if his Jedi masters had a similar system.
0: Two. Stryver's count continued. During her self-imposed exile, Xandrit and her fellow artisans advanced robotics in directions no one has ever seen before. Finding inspiration and materials in human biology itself, they sought to make droids that would neither age nor grow inflexible and hidebound, so their small colony could last forever. The technical challenges were immense, of course, but they made some progress in unexpected directions. The droids you've seen are advanced prototypes called fast breeders given enough metal and raw energy they grow from seeds into fully formed combat versions in a matter of days the nest on Hutta could have produced dozens of such killers if left undisturbed and the same is true of the nests on Sabatan. the hot spots you've been observing from above the ones that look like cities are in fact droid building factories They're churning out fast breeders by the thousand now that the planet defenses have been tripped. And not just fast breeders, new factories as well. That is where the true threat lies. This was the weapon she intended to use against the Empire. Three, if left unchecked, Xandrit's breeder technology will inevitably outgrow its homeworld and spill out into the galaxy. The math of geometric progression is undeniable. One world this year, two worlds the next, then four, then eight. Within a decade, it's 250 worlds. Then another decade later, it's a quarter of a million. One human generation is all they would need to take over the entire galaxy. Along with Sith, Jedi, and Mandalorians alike. Four. Negotiation is no longer an option. Xandrit put all her prejudices into her droids. You've heard their voices. You know what drives them. The only solution is to crush Sabadin completely. We must be ruthless, decisive, and thorough in order to ensure that Lima Xandret's legacy is completely eradicated. Just one nest would be enough to allow all this to start over
2: again. Striver had run out of fingers on his right hand. Are you finished? Asked the Sith.
0: I will be if this thread isn't neutralized.
2: Striver's fists descended to take his weight, knuckle first, on the side of the hollow projector. The sphere of Sabatin turned unstoppably between them. Glowing red lights appeared and spread like a plague in fast motion. Soon the whole planet was red. And streams of tiny malignant dots began to leap off the surface and escape into unseen spaces. You said we. Satil Shan's voice made Ula jump. We must be ruthless. I presume that was deliberate.
0: It was. Everything I have seen on Ada and Sabadan confirms my worst fears. Sabadan is responding to the threat you all represent by ramping up production. It must be stopped before the contagion spreads. Since neither Empire nor Republic can single-handedly destroy this menace with the resources available right now, you must work together to see it done.
2: With you in charge, I suppose, said Loren. The end justifies the means. I will never take orders from a Mandalorian, said the Sith in mocking tones. And I will never fight alongside a Jedi. You are insane even to suggest it. There must be an alternative, Master Satil said. Another attempt at negotiation,
0: perhaps. The planetary defense system is automated. The only voices coming from the planet originate with the fast breeders. That's how I know that Lima Sandred is dead. Everyone down there is dead. It's just the droids now. And you can't negotiate with them. Well,
2: we can't trust one another, said Shigar. That's some choice you've given us.
0: Could I make it any other way, I would. Believe me.
2: Jedi and Sith glowered at one another over the hologram. And suddenly, Ula knew exactly what he had to do. Once again, Jet had been absolutely right. Ula could see both sides at once and save himself into the bargain. Are you the leader of the Imperial fleet? He asked the young Sith. He already knew the answer. The Emperor would never trust such wealth to someone so young, no matter how powerful she might be. But he had to ask for appearance's sake. No, she admitted. Whoever that person is, then, I want to speak to them face to face, he said. I believe I can bring the Empire to the table. You... My master would gut a worm like you just to watch you die. Ula's stomach roiled. Her master... He'd hoped for a non-Sith commander, but would have to settle for what he got. Take me to your command vessel and let me try. If I fail, by the sound of things, I might as well be dead. Your death is closer than you think. He's in the shuttle. Well then, all the better. It'll be over quickly. Envoy B, said Satil Shan, be very careful. You must be absolutely sure of yourself. I am. He straightened and puffed out his chest. If the Empire agrees to strive a suggestion, will you? The Grand Master showed no sign of uncertainty. Of course. We're not at war after all, and the threat is severe. Good. Ula turned back to the Sith girl. She was tight-lipped with rage, as though she couldn't believe his audacity.
0: This isn't a trick.
2: I'll go with you now if you'll take me. Please. Just you, she finally said. No one else. That's out of the question, said Lorraine. No, he said, although his heart warmed at her concern. I'm happy to go on my own. If I can't convince them with words... "'What difference would a rifle or two make?' "'She reluctantly backed down. "'Just be careful. We want you back in one piece.' "'Not several?' said the Sif. "'She was grinning now, perhaps anticipating the sport her master would have with him. "'I refuse to guarantee anything.' "'Ula wondered if he looked as faint as he felt. "'What if she killed him the moment they were on the other side of the airlock, "'before he had a chance to speak?' That would be the most awful irony of all. I'm ready," he said in as strong a voice as he could muster. Let's not keep your master waiting. Indeed," she said. Let's not.
0: If we don't hear from you within thirty minutes, we'll assume you're dead.
2: Ula walked around the holo projector, and let the imperial guards take him by the shoulders, and frog march him to the door. There was no turning back now. The eyes of his erstwhile allies in the Republic followed him as he was led off to betray them all. The moment the airlock closed behind them, the puny envoy started to struggle. Axe strode on, her mind full of ways to lessen the inevitable consequences of her failure. She didn't know what Darth Kratis had expected, but he was sure to turn this unexpected result against her. That she was finding it hard to think wasn't helping. Listen to me, the envoy called after her. You have to listen to me. She didn't slow down. She barely even heard him. Lima Zandrit is dead, Stryver had said. Everyone down there is dead. She didn't know why that pronouncement had made a difference, but it seemed to. Her family, her mother. What had happened to her father? She had never asked. Maybe he was dead too. Had died years ago when she was a child. Maybe he was a Sith Lord who wouldn't lower himself to be associated with a common woman. Maybe, she thought. Just maybe. Impossible. She mocked herself for even thinking it. Darth Kratos was no kind of father to her and never would be. She needed no father, just like she needed no family. If Striver was right and the fugitives were all dead, that just made her life easier. She wouldn't have to expend the energy finding and killing them in the Emperor's name. Please, I'm trying to tell you that I'm not who you think I am. We're on the same side and have been all the time. The squawking of the envoy finally penetrated her consciousness. On the brink of entering the shuttle, she stopped and reached out one half-gripped hand. He swept out of the guard's hands and smashed into the airlock wall. Don't even think of lying to me, she said.
0: Uh, I'm not.
2: The envoy was pale as marble and his voice little more than a whisper, but he didn't flinch as she approached.
0: I'm An Imperial Agent!
2: She activated her lightsaber and held it across his throat. You don't look like a cipher agent. You're not even fully human. Her contempt was ferocious.
0: (laughs) All, All right. Not an agent per se, but an informer at least. And I am loyal,
2: regardless what species I am. Utterly loyal? I swear it! did didn't move. She knew that many highly ranked Republic officers sometimes preferred non-human staff and the belief that this would protect them from surveillance. If this envoy had been turned, he would be highly prized by the Minister of Information. <laughs> I tried to board your shuttle on Hunter, he pressed on, beginning to stammer now. <laughs> but the guards turned me away. That much was true and it made her hesitate. Axe couldn't believe she was listening to him, and more, actually considering his story. But his brazenness and bravery in the face of certain death were persuasive. She had to admire his guts, even if she would see them sizzling, if she found out that he was trying to trick her. It wasn't impossible that he was a double agent placed by Satil Shan to lead her and her master astray. Axe smiled with her teeth. Darth Kratos would know. If the envoy was telling the truth, it would be a boon for her. If not, her master would have someone else upon which to act out his displeasure. What species are you? She asked him. <laughs> Epicanthics! Never heard of it.
0: We come from Panatha in the Picanth Reach. I don't care.
2: If you ever want to see her home again, if you ever want to see anything again, then you'll tell my master everything you just told me, and convince him that it's true. Who
0: is your master?
2: Darth Kratis. Does that name mean anything to you? If anything, the envoy went even paler. Good. Then you appreciate the gravity of your situation. She deactivated her lightsaber and let him drop. The guards picked him up and dragged him after her into the shuttle where her master waited. Darth Kratos awaited her in the shuttle's spacious but inhospitable passenger cabin, wearing a bulky armored suit. Only his face was visible, pinched and puckered into a permanent scowl. He leaned heavily on his lightsaber staff. When he saw the envoy, his brow came down even farther. Explain. Axe did so starting at Dous Driver's dire predictions and moving quickly on to the possibility of cooperation. The prisoner remained silent throughout, struck dumb by Darth Kratos's forbidding mien. That was a good thing. Had he interrupted at any point, he might have been killed out of hand.
0: And Satil Shan has been taken in by
2: this Mandalorian's machinations. Her master's eyebrows as thin as old scars rose up toward his time-worn scalp. It appears so, she said. She sent her envoy to negotiate on her behalf. Now Darth Kratos's stare descended fully upon him, and the envoy quailed. Speak. My name is Ulavi'i, he stammered. I report directly to Watcher
0: 3 in the Operations Division of the Ministry of Intelligence. I am your servant, my lord, a loyal agent of the Empire... A spy? How
2: unfortunate for the Grand Master. Darth Kratos' face
0: broke into a broad, cracked smile. Tell me, spy, how you propose to betray her. Republic and Empire
2: share the same initial objectives, the envoy said, pulling free from the two guards. He had clearly been thinking hard while waiting his turn to speak. The smashing of Sabatton's orbital defense system comes ahead of any invasion or mass bombardment, the purpose of which would be the neutralization of the planet's central authority, since it must have one, human or artificial. And together, I agree that we can probably achieve that. But once we have the planet toothless and brainless, the need for an alliance will be gone. I suggest we turn on the Jedi and Thal Striver then. Break the so-called alliance and take what's rightfully ours. Sabadin will be the emperor's at last. I'll supply misinformation at every opportunity, ensuring that the Grand Master does not ever find the chance to do the same to you. What do you ask for in return? The envoy looks surprised by the question. Me? Nothing,
0: my lord. Uh, I'm simply doing my duty. There must be something important to you, beyond your duty. Ask, and it shall be yours. Well, uh, there is one that I would
2: ask you to spare, after your inevitable victory.
0: Tell me who. She is no one, lower even than a trooper. Her name is Lorin Moxler. Do you know this woman, Axe? Darth Kratus asked.
2: I believe I do, Master. Good. Darth Kratos' smile disappeared. The envoy was wrenched roughly forward and raised into the air. He struggled against the invisible hold on him, but there was no resisting it. Axe had experienced the power of her master's force grip. She knew how tight it could be. Listen to me, spy! The envoy frantically nodded, too frightened to
0: speak aloud. I cannot read you! Your mind is shielded from me by either some unnatural contrivance or a natural talent. I suspect the latter. The Minister of Intelligence seeks out your
2: kind in order to keep his secrets from both his masters and our enemy.
0: So when I look into you, I see no loyalty to the Emperor. I sense only tangled allegiances with no clear outcomes. Given a choice, I would never trust you. Yet you and your kind are a loathsome necessity in times like these. I must find a way to curb your natural instinct for treachery. To that
2: end... Here, Envoy V.E. jerked violently forward, so he was staring straight into the eyes of Darth Kratos. To that
0: end, be sure that if you betray me... "'I will hunt down the fancy of your non-human heart "'and put her through such torments "'that you will be grateful when I kill her. "'And then it will be your turn. "'Is that clear?'
2: "'Yes, my lord. Abundantly so.' "'The envoy dropped with a thud to the floor. "'Very good,' said Darth Kratos.
0: Axe, get him out of my sight.' You will return him to Sedil Shan with the agreement he promised her, and you will accompany him as my official mouthpiece. But, Master, be silent! I could hardly let him go alone. They would never believe that I trusted them unless I took such precautions. You will watch the Grand Master, and you will watch this one too. At the slightest sign of treachery, you will notify me, and my wrath will descend upon both of them.
2: She bowed her head, thinking. Another dead-end task,
0: and probably a suicide mission, too. I will do as you instruct. I sense your impatience, Axe. Remember that our rewards will be bountiful when victory is complete. When the Grand Master is dead and this world ours, then your apprenticeship will be over. Not before. Go now and do my bidding. Yes, Master,
2: she said, bowing deeply, sure that he sensed the burn of excitement in her mind. To be free of him at last, to be a true Sith. That was all she had ever wanted, and she deserved it. She knew that well. Not for nothing had she slaved this last decade and more to the detriment of all else. Lima Sandret is dead. Axe suppressed even the barest hint of regret as she turned and left the shuttle, dragging the quivering informer behind her.
1: Holy guacamole. Now that was an exciting journey that transported us beyond the confines of this world. We just experienced the events of part nine and I was totally captivated by the story like a little fuzzy bear seeing a golden robot for the very first time. It just left me yearning for the unimaginable wonders that await us. But before we can get to the next episode of the show, we gotta finish this one. And that means we need to unveil the quote, a message that echoes through the universe itself. And this episode's quote comes to us from Harvey McKay. He said, people begin to become successful the minute they decide to be. While well, that's a pretty good quote. This quote highlights the profound impact of personal choice and a mindset of achieving success. It suggests that the journey towards success starts at the very moment that the individual makes the deliberate decision to pursue it. At its core, this quote emphasizes the significance of a mindset and intentions in shaping our outcome. It acknowledges that success is not solely determined by external circumstances or luck, but rather by an individual's conscious choice to embark on the path of achievement. By emphasizing the importance of this decision-making process, the quote encourages individuals to take ownership of their aspirations and actively work towards realizing them. In essence, the quote suggests that success is not an abstract concept reserved for a select few, but rather an attainable goal that anyone can pursue. It underscores the idea that success is not a passive outcome, but an active pursuit fueled by determination, dedication, and perseverance. It empowers individuals by recognizing their ability to shape their own destinies and emphasizing the transformative power of resolute decision. Overall, this quote serves as a motivational reminder that success is in the reach of anyone who pursues it. It emphasizes the power of personal choice, mindset, and the intention in shaping one's path towards success. It encourages individuals to take charge of their aspiration believing in their potential and taking the necessary actions to turn their dreams into a reality and because of that anybody can do it now i think that's all i have for today i hope you enjoyed this episode as much as i did and i hope you will join me next time for more exciting star wars adventures until then may the force be with you Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Sway Cast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic's Fatal Alliance was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.